Good morning, everyone. How are you all? Good. Uh, thank you, Clude, for the uh, introduction. And uh, just before we get started, I want to say a big thank you and congrats to Clude, White Hat team, and all the extended folks that make today possible, uh, today and other days like this. So congrats to all of them. Uh, thanks for organizing. Uh, and maybe on behalf of Brian and myself, uh, thanks to all of you for, for coming along today. Um, it's a great opportunity for us to speak to you directly, uh, get some interaction. We'll have some Q&A piece in the second part of this session. So uh, if you have some questions, thoughts, please prepare them. We'd love to capture those and, and respond to those too. So thank you for, for coming today in a typical English-stroke-Irish weather outside as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Brian, thanks for coming over. Thanks yes. for uh, taking the trip. Um, we'll jump straight in. We've got a, a relatively short amount of time, so perhaps if it's okay, we'll, we'll get started. Sure. Um, folks who have been keeping track of uh, our communications along the last number of months and couple of years will have noticed there's been a shift from talking about a funnel by talking about a flywheel. Curious your thoughts on... Uh, maybe to give people your version of what the flight wheel is and, and how you've come to, to that thought process. Sure. People heard of the flywheel? Yeah. Okay. Uh, if I kind of roll the clock way back and think of, uh, we started HubSpot 13 years ago, yesterday actually. And the, the genesis of HubSpot was my co-founder and I are, we consider ourselves kind of like social anthropologists. We watch how humans behave and interact, and we really study how humans, particularly B2B humans, buy stuff. And we really like to study that interplay between the buyer and the seller and what's going on there. The genesis of HubSpot was what we saw were major, major shifts in that interface between the buyer and the seller. In particular, what we noticed back in 2006 was that humans, all of us, we were becoming relatively immune to marketing. We were becoming very good at blocking any and all marketing out. And back then, you can think about it as uh, caller ID was a new thing. I don't know what do they call that in the UK. You have caller ID? Caller ID. Okay. Uh, ad blocker software, spam protection software. Um, we had something called a DVR back then. It was nearly impossible to market your way into someone's lives, and humans were immune to marketing. At the same time, all of us humans, we were shifting the way we behaved and we consumed information. We went from consuming three newspapers a day to a gajillion blogs a day. We went from consuming five television stations a day to a billion YouTube stations. We went from consuming a couple of radio stations to a day to a bajillion uh, podcast. The human, there was this massive kind of shift in human behavior that created an opportunity, frankly, for marketers to transform the way they went to market uh, in a way that matched the way people uh, bought. We called that inbound marketing back then. And we espoused that the solution to this was don't create your own TV station, create your own YouTube channel. Don't create your own newspaper, create your own blog. Don't create your own radio show, Create your own podcast. Don't rent space on somebody else's asset. Create your own asset and pull people in in a very organic way. Match the way you go to market to the way people shop and buy. And to me, back then, there was sort of a wormhole, an arbitrage opportunity, a shift in the universe that created a massive opportunity for forward-looking marketers to really grow their businesses in a new and interesting way using inbound versus old-school outbound. That was kind of the genesis of HubSpot and how we got going. And frankly, inbound marketing still works a gajillion times better than outbound marketing. It works a little less well, quite honestly, than it used to. And why is that? 
Why is inbound marketing work a little less well? Well, when we first started HubSpot, if you did a search on Google, there were a few little ads on the right side that were, you, know, you barely see those Google ads on the right side. Now when I search on Google on my phone, the whole page is ads. Same with Facebook, same with Twitter, same with LinkedIn. Everything's kind of become pay to play. And so the world has shifted a little bit. Still lots of opportunity with inbound. But I think the arbitrage opportunity, the opportunity for all of you to grow your business in 2019, 2020, and beyond has shifted. The wormhole on the internet has shifted. And I think of it around this, this uh, flywheel idea. And I'll describe how I think about the opportunity with my morning routine. And I don't know if your morning routines are similar, but when I wake up every morning, I wake up on something called a Casper mattress. And then I get up, and I take off my Warby Parker glasses, and I put them on the stand. And then I take out my phone, and I turn on something called Spotify. And I dance to a band called The Grateful Dead. Raise your hand. You know The Grateful Dead? Yes, love The Grateful Dead. And then I go in the bathroom, and I shave with my Dollar Shave Club razor. And then I put on my Trunk Club outfit, and I take an Uber to work. Now, what I think is fascinating fascinating about my morning routine, which you would think would be a very boring thing, my morning routine. What's fascinating about my morning routine is those six companies I just mentioned have infiltrated their way every day into my life. Now, what do those companies have in common, and what do you share with them? What can you learn from those six companies? Well, those six companies are startups. They're new companies. They're not big old companies. They're startups. Those companies are growing like a weed. Most of them have north of a billion-dollar valuation. Many of them are either public or on their way they're going public. They're all disrupting their existing market spaces. Well, how are they disrupting them? Is it a technology disruption? Is it? Not really. Like, we've been talking about technology disruption our whole lives, tech disruption. They're an experience disruption. That's how I think about these companies. They're experience disruptors. It used to be that the company got its product first to market would win. And that the best product almost always won. Today, the best product's kind of table stakes. Today, the winner is the first person who got that awesome, delicious, end-to-end customer experience just right online. That's the company that won. All those companies I'm dealing with every morning... They have a delicious end-to-end experience. They sell the exact same product as their predecessor. Spotify looks a lot like Apple Music. Uh, Warby Parker looks like the rest of the glasses companies. Uh, Casper Mattress looks like Sealy Mattresses. Dollar Shave Club looks like Gillette. Stitch Fix looks like Nordstrom's. Uh, Uber looks like a cab company. They've transformed not the product. The product's essentially the same. They've transformed that end-to-end experience to make it really right. That That is how you build a great company today, by disrupting on the experience side, not the product side. It's not about having a a product that's 10 times better than the competition. It's about having a customer experience that's 10 times better than the competition. That's where the new opportunity is for all of us, including HubSpot uh, ourselves. I forgot what the question was. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about all connected. So taking that context into the flywheel concept, so maybe how does experience and flywheel, where do they meet? Yes. Uh, I think all of these companies are what I call flywheel businesses. They don't think of themselves like a funnel. The funnel I thought, uh, tell me if you've heard of the funnel. Raise your hand. 
Yeah, everyone uses the funnel. It's, it's not just the listing. That's great. Um, let's talk about the funnel for a second. I've been using the funnel since I remember I first heard about the funnel in 1993. Uh, I was a sales director at a different company back then. And a guy came in and pitched me the funnel, and I thought it was the smartest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And let's just draw it. I got a bad, I have a bad paw. Now, this funnel metaphor has been very useful for all of us for a whole career. It's changed a lot. <clears throat> Early in my career, this is what the funnel looked like in the 1990s. Marketing at the top, really thin, not that important. Sales, most of it, sales had all the leverage, all the power in the relationship. Customers. Then inbound kind of came along, right? In, the, in 2006, 2007, for like 10 years, it shifted. And I would redraw it. It's more like this. Marketing became more important. Sales became important but different because you had a website and you had LinkedIn and you had G2 Crowd and you had all this stuff out there where people could check on you. And the sales rep was not the only source of information. Information went from being asymmetric, where the sales rep had the information the prospect didn't, being almost perfectly symmetric, where the buyer and seller have the same information at almost the exact same time. Big shift, marketing gains of power. Everybody with me? So this is, this is really the last 10 years. 2006, 2019. Now I think of it more like this. And it's this flywheel idea where it's, yeah, marketing is here, and sales is here, and customers is here. Why? Why am I redrawing it? I actually think of these three channels, from 1996 to 2006, sales had all the power, and you should invest most of your resources in sales, right? 2006, 2019, Marketing really had the power, more than sales, had more leverage in the relationship. I think today, from 2019 to, well, I don't know when, the customer has the power. Now, why is this happening, and why do I say this? <coughs> well, there's a couple reasons. One is when I ask people, like I ask you, I may ask you up when we're having coffee, why did you buy my spot? Yeah, you probably read our blog and liked it. Yes, you probably talked to one of uh, Christian Kinnear's great salespeople and they were helpful. But the real reason you bought is you used it at your last company. Or you talked to your friend that used it. Or your cousin used it. And the word of mouth is much faster these days. I mean, it just spread. G2 crowd, you read the reviews. That's not the only reason. I think today, especially in the United States, but I think it's a global phenomenon. I think it's in the United States since 2016. There is a dramatic lack of trust in institutions in the United States. People certainly don't trust their government like they used to. Don't trust their president like they used to. They don't trust the news media like they used to. They don't trust social media like they used to. They don't trust religious organizations like they used to. Nobody trusts anybody anymore. 
The world has changed. There's sort of a crisis in trust happening in the world. You know who else they don't trust? Salespeople and marketers. <laughs> it's unfortunate because I'm a salesperson and a marketer by trade. But that's at an all-time low. Increasingly, people trust their family and friends and colleagues. And so there's just this distrust happening in the world. And so the voice in customers' heads when they buy is other customers. And so by flywheel, I mean, how do you get your company to grow and spend? Yes, invest in marketing. It still works. Do inbound. Yes, invest in inbound selling. But invest in your customers because this, these people are the loudest voice inside your prospect step when they buy. They do double duty. They pay you money and they sell and market your products for you. That's how I think about the flywheel. Excellent. Thank you, Brian. Um, I think what might be going through the minds of people here is you've come up with an articulation of a story and a narrative that's, that's fascinating. And the question I was going to ask you on behalf of people here is, how do you do that? Do, how do you step back from it's a very busy business, it's growing at a, a fast rate. How do you find time to work, work on the business to step back to, to see the bigger picture uh, rather than just be pulled into the, the operating running of the business? Oh, I see. Personally? Yes. Um, there is this, this tension of working in the business versus on the business that I'm always struggling with. I have a, 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 some novel w ways and hacks uh, that I use to pop up my, my lens of how I work. Like uh, once a month, I write down my list of eight or nine priorities I want to do for the month, and I publish them on our internal wiki. Uh, wiki, a word used in the UK, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm... I force myself to publish those, then all my colleagues can see what I'm working on. And when somebody asks me to do something, somebody wants to take something from their to-do list and put it on my to-do list, which is like your whole day in Slack and inside of email is you're doing other people's to-dos all day. Once in a while, I like to work on my to-dos. And so by writing them down, someone asked me to do something, uh, I can't think of anything right now, I would say, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. It's not on my priority list. But if you make an argument, maybe it can make it on my priority list next month. And so it enables me to focus on my top things. Another, th another hack I have that works is I work from home one day a week. And when I say work from home, no meetings, no conference calls, no Zooms. It's just work. And it's time to work on a project or a think piece or a something, the strategy of the company, without interruption. And this is important for a couple reasons. It gets me out of the tactical day-to-day -day very quickly responding to the stuff and more into meaty thinking about things. The second thing it helps is um, it may not appear on stage, but I'm an introvert. And I need that time alone with just myself and my dog uh, to recharge my batteries because I'm with people Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, all day with people. I get, I don't know about you, I get tired. I just get tired. Uh, it's a lot of people time for me. And so having that one day alone helps me recharge my batteries and work on bigger picture stuff. Uh, I'll tell you another weird thing. Everyone dislikes going to their board meetings. We have board meetings once a quarter like a lot of companies. I like the board meetings because the agenda of the board meetings forces us to kind of pick our heads up and think about the business holistically and about the competitive landscape and about humans, how humans are changing. We also have an annual event at HubSpot called Inbound. I encourage you all to go. And every year at Inbound, my co-founder and I have to do a presentation, and it's in front of 20-something thousand people. It's nerve-wracking. Um, and you have, to, you have to say something novel and interesting. 
And the root of that novel presentation that we have every year is in this idea of studying that interface, that interplay between a buyer and a seller. In a way, we, we kind of fashion ourselves like uh, David Attenborough, or Richard Attenborough. Who's the anthropologist? David, David Attenborough. He's really, he goes in the jungle, right? He's in there, he's sitting in like, you know, some jungle in the middle of nowhere. He's got mosquitoes all over him. He's got his microphone and his camera. And he's studying how birds mate. That's kind of us. We go in the jungle and we study how humans decide and how they collaborate and how they make decisions. And that's the root of how we think about how to build HubSpot, how to influence the future of the product. And it makes it a little tricky running HubSpot because we want to do everything our customers want us to build. And historically, like, we do probably 50% of the stuff we build is for our customers or an enhancement request for customers. But our customers tend not to think about what's happening next and what's happening between humans. And so we tend to build things that push our customers forward. And that's been part of, our, it, part of what slows us down sometimes, but it's part of our secret sauce that we're real geeks about this buying process. Excellent. Thank you. Um, in the same vein of trying to pass some uh, takeaway advice, things people could maybe ponder themselves and think through, um, back uh, half a step to the, f the, uh, to the flywheel, are there any tips or advice you could give to people who are, want to move the business towards a flywheel-centered business? Any, anything they should start thinking about or areas they could look at? Sure. I think the one thing you could do is just start writing, instead of drawing everything like this, writing it like this, right? And you could do the, the uh, right here, you could do how many visitors, how many leads, how many customers. You could use the conversion rate of visitors to lead, conversion rate to, from leads to customers. But the magic is here. And what should we measure there? You know, this is obvious, visitors, leads, customers. Why can't we measure happy customers in the percentage of happy customers to other? And so the thing we obsess about here is something we call net promoter score. And we survey, we probably surveyed a lot of you, on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely are you to refer HubSpot to a colleague and why? And we learn a lot from those surveys. And then we break it out and we say, what percentage of our customers are a 9 or a 10, are really happy and telling other people about it? What percentage of our customers are not? And we're trying to get that ratio up as fast as we can. I think the way, if you want to get your flywheel to spin faster, you want to increase your percentage of happy customers out there and get your word of mouth up. These, of course, are important, but you'll improve these by improving that. This solves kind of all ills inside of companies. I hope. Yes, great. Okay. I have uh, another question for you, not, not whiteboard related. Sure. So, I'd like to rest for a moment. Um, it is customer-centric, <laughs> once again. Customers common threads throughout all of this. Um, Again, folks, I think may uh, be aware, we recently launched the customer code. Yes. Uh, and in HubSpot, we uh, went through the exercise of uh, building out a report card for ourselves to lead by example and thinking through um, the, the thought process of how you might build a customer code but applying it to ourselves. I'm curious, uh, there's lots of customers here who may have the same thought process. Can you share a little what it was like to, to complete that report card? Was it... Was it surprising? Was it not? Was it humbling? Or just get a sense of that. Sure. We, we, um, uh, Christian's correct. We come up with this customer code, which is like a report card for your end-to-end -end customer experience, trying to get something that's delicious and light. Um, and we, I think we got, we, Darmesh and I filled it out ourselves, and I think we gave ourselves a 7.1 out of 10. 
And then we had a bunch of customers fill it out, and we got a 6.7 out of 10. And so it was clear we weren't, you know, we, were, we weren't nearly as good as we wanted to be. In the area in which we had the most pain in our customer experience, as we, as we, as we took our customer from they had never heard of us to they've been a customer for three years, where are the jagged edges in that experience? Much of them I like to refer to as, as this idea of like your org chart is showing. That as you move through your experience with HubSpot, there are jagged edges as you touch different parts of our organization and get handed off between different organizations. And they're awkward, and you feel them, and it slows you down, and they're not delightful. And what we've largely done, and I think everyone does, is design their systems and their organization internally and then thought about them externally. Whereas how do you design your systems and your organization from the customer in Tricky to do, but that's how we're working on changing HubSpot is we don't want people to see our org chart. We want to feel that experience to be much smoother. I also just think in society today, and it started with millennials, but it spread to my generation and beyond, it's humans no longer want to talk to humans. It's, sad, it's a sad state of society, but they would, if, they, if at all possible, people want to be able to search on Google and find the answer. Search on your knowledge base. Go to your chatbot. In the last course of action, they want to pick up the phone and talk to another human being. Um, it's just an inefficient way to find information talking to other humans, it turns out. And so we're trying, when we look at our, our customer experience, we want to make the first line of defense humanless. We want you to be able to self-serve and find your own information. If you have to talk to a human, we want to make that easy to find and easy to use. But when we, you talk to that human, we want that human to know exactly what's going on to have been tracking all your activity with HubSpot, to have all the information they need so they hit the nail on the head when they have that conversation and don't have to hand you off from person to person. And so we're th rethinking our customer experience to make it a delicious one. I think that's an opportunity for us relative to our competition to really differentiate and compete and win in the marketplace. Very good. Thank you. Um, I'm going to switch gears. I know we're just coming up on the... Uh, the first half is closing out, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit, if you don't mind, into a little bit of product, a little bit of HubSpot-specific product, if you don't mind. Um, just to get your sense, again, we've, we're in the middle of a journey right now of moving from uh, an app to suite. There's talk yep. of suite to platform as well. Maybe to help us understand a little of your thinking of why, why that movement. Yeah, and so we're definitely moving. We started HubSpot as a marketing application lead generation software company. And it's probably obvious now why we're moving from we have marketing, sales, and service and a CRM platform all wrapped up in one. And the reason being is we just feel like the opportunity for all of you is not just in lead generation, but crafting these nice experiences. And these experiences are hard to craft when you're using a disjointed platform. We want to create one easy interface, one bill to pay, uh, one person to call if you got stuck. Uh, we want to create one system to help you craft that, uh, that experience. So that's the, the, the first one we're up to is moving from app to suite. It's going really, really well. Marketing product still growing. We have a nice sales product that's doing really, really well. We have a pretty new service product that's doing real well. And what we're noticing when people come in to buy HubSpot, they used to buy, you know, oh, we're going to buy Salesforce in, in HubSpot and mix them. More and more people are saying, hey, we're a Salesforce shop or a HubSpot shop. And a lot of people are just saying, hey, you know, we're going to be a HubSpot shop. We're going to use it for marketing, sales, and service, which is you know, great with us. 
Um, there's another shift going on underneath HubSpot that's kind of a shift from this idea of a suite of tools to more of a platform type of solution. And what's motivating that is also sort of an interesting change going on in the, in the, in the society at large. That when you walked into a company 10 years ago, and let's say the company had 100 employees, they maybe had 10 different applications they used inside that company to manage the business. You walk into a company with 100 employees today, I mean, they have 150, 200 different SaaS applications that they're stitching together to create solutions and solve problems. There's just an explosion of SaaS applications inside of companies. And I think that's good. For a long time at HubSpot, we sort of fought that. And we said, no, just use HubSpot. Don't use Google Analytics. Don't use MailChimp. Don't use Drift. Don't use, you name it, other application. Just use HubSpot. We kind of flipped to being much more open and saying, gosh, go ahead and use whatever you want. Let's make it easy for those companies to integrate into HubSpot by opening up our APIs and making our support really well. Let's have a really good partner program. And let's treat them all as partners, not as competitors, and let them all in. And so what we want is HubSpot to sort of be that backbone system for your front office to create that great experience and then weave all your other applications into that experience alongside HubSpot's application. That's sort of the motivation on, on platform. If you look at a year ago, there were about 100 different software companies that built integrations to HubSpot. And today it's about 320 different software companies building integrations. Plus, there's great companies like Zapier who are really improving their solution on how they integrate to HubSpot. Our APIs have gotten very good, very high quality, very broad. So making a lot of progress on the platform side. Excellent. Uh, and last question, and then we're going to open up to the floor. So if you have questions, please prepare them. Um, is it to the future? So curious as much as you can share your the future of the product. Anything you see coming that particularly excites you, stuff you think is sure. coming down the track? Yeah, a lot. Uh, we've, investing, we've increased our R&D budget 50% for the last uh, three years, so we're really cranking on the product side. We've released a lot of product in the last two years, um, we've gone from like a marketing app to this full suite. We, one of the things we're working on is making that suite better. So, for example, we have a sales enterprise product and a service enterprise product. They're good. They're definitely not great yet. So a lot of enhancement going into our existing products. All three product lines are going to get a lot better. A ton of investment into making our applications faster for the end users and making, them, uh, making the user experience better and easier for mere mortals to use it. We want to make that front end of HubSpot to be consumer grade. You know, it's like a consumer app. And then on the back end of HubSpot, lots and lots of work on platform APIs, lots and lots of work on um, custom objects going on, lots and lots of work on reporting and analytics going on. And so tremendous amount of work inside of HubSpot going on the front end being more consumer grade, faster, more usable, back end more enterprise grade, or APIs custom objects, reporting, analytics. So tremendous amount of exciting work going on. So I've been at it 13 years. It's, it's the coolest time I've been in, since I've been at HubSpot is right now. It's really, really fun what's going on. Lovely. Yes. Thank you, Brian. So hopefully in the last 30 or so minutes, we've given you a whistle-stop tour of lots of things that are going on inside HubSpot between the change of methodology, the shift to double down on customer code and customer centricity, and a lot of product development, uh, both current and future, that's coming down the track. So hopefully it's given you a flavor of, of what's been happening uh, inside the business over the last uh, number of months and years. I'd like to open up the floor now to any questions we have from, from folks. This one here. I don't think we have a microphone, do we? 
We can, we can shout. shout out anything. So if people want to um, shout out a question, I'll repeat it, and we can... Uh, Great. So I'll take this minute here. Uh, hi, uh, Brian. Um, hi. Greg uh, from SAS Global Communications. Um, uh, I liked what you were saying about the uh, net promoter score. Uh, we, we measure that. Uh, we use a separate band called uh, Ask Nicely. Uh, so a two-part question. First is, uh, do you have a plan to build net promoter score into our spot? The second one is that uh, we, we as a I have thoughts on both. Uh, we have built in a very lightweight net promoter score into our service hub product. And so if you're using a service hub, you can check that out. If you want to do really advanced stuff, Ask Nicely probably already has an integration to HubSpot. I've heard their name around. Do you know? Yes. yes they have an integration? Yeah. yeah. I've heard their name. Uh, so if you want a really easy one, it's free inside of the service hub. If you want a more complicated one, you can go through them. Uh, we have the same challenge, by the way, as to who makes the decision and who uses it. And I'll tell you something very interesting uh, and something we're trying to solve when we haven't is we have a, a situation, we call them the N plus one user. So the person who buys HubSpot and first implements it, that's N. And let's just say it's a director of marketing inside of a company. That person's net promoter score is sky high, sky high. They love it. They're evangelizing it. They know how to use it. Um, the further you get user-wise from that N, the lower that net promoter score is. So you're the 75th sales rep who implements HubSpot. Your net promoter score is, it's good, but it's nowhere near the excellent where the top one is. And so we're spending a tremendous amount of energy on the onboarding flow of the N plus one. How do we get, how do we get videos in front of them that are appropriate? How do we give them a little bit of information, not overwhelm them when they land in, the, land in the portal? How do we get chats set up so the first time that person comes in the portal, there's a friendly, helpful support rep saying, hey, do you need some help? And then we'll circle in humans in some cases where it makes sense on big accounts. So there's a huge, huge, huge disparity, huge uh, on MPS between those that we're working on as well. So misery loves company. <laughs> Brian, I've got a quick question, actually, sure. sort of a, a relating to that, because we get asked a lot, you know, we're a HubSpot agency, there are other HubSpot agencies. How does HubSpot look at the agency world in terms of delivering on this vision of helping the implementation of, of this and getting the understanding and, and making it successful? Are, yeah. there, are there partners key to the HubSpot growth, or are they peripheral to it? No, they're right in the middle of it. So uh, there's two ways people tend to use HubSpot. Uh, and it's been about 50-50. Half our customers, they get HubSpot, and they want to do it themselves. They want to build that capability 100% internally themselves, and they go through all training, get certified, they buy our implementation, they get up and running. Another half uses agencies like yours, and, uh, and it's a little bit of do-it-for-me mixed in with do-it-yourself. And uh, ironically, that, ha that number hasn't changed in 12 years since we started the agency partner program. People love our partners. They're a strategic part of our business. It's a core competitive advantage for us. Um, so, no, it's not an afterthought by any means. It's a, it's a core part of why we win. By the way, I'll answer uh, You didn't ask me this question, but I was hoping you would. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I talk to marketers and salespeople and go-to-market people a lot about, you know, what is HubSpot's secret sauce? You know, what is it about our marketing that really works? 
And we're not good, we're not great at everything. We're great at a couple of things, and we're okay, we're good at a bunch of stuff. We're great at some hard things. We are great at, and you guys are white hat, you're SEO people, but we are great at SEO. If you look at the number of links into HubSpot site, it is insane from very high domain authority sites, and we set up our, our, our pages and such in a way that is very Google friendly, and we get millions and millions and millions of branded and non-branded visitors every month from Google, essentially for free. And what I like about that is it's a permanent, like I think of a marketer as you get, as a business, you've got assets on your balance sheet, you've got cash, you've got inventory, you've got machinery. As a marketer, you've got assets on your balance sheet, links into your website, pages on your website, things like that. Links into your site and pages on your site are permanent marketing assets. Quality of those assets can go up and the return on those assets go up. It's a very long-term patient game that we've been playing for 13 years and has, has paid off incredibly well. So we do very little advertising. We just don't have to. The second thing we are excellent, and that's, that's content marketing slash SEO we're very, very good at. The second thing we're excellent at is this agency channel. It's unique relative to our competition. It's very hard to build. Uh, it's sustainable, kind of like SEO. Like if our competition wants to steal you as an agency, you certainly could go, but you tend to be loyal because we've been working together for a long time. You've got a whole book of business built around us. Ironically, I think our agencies like yourself are more loyal to HubSpot oftentimes than our employees because our employees can go and whatever. They learned at HubSpot, they go to the next thing. Agencies are sort of stuck with us, whether, they li whether you like it or not, you're kind of stuck with us. This is true. <laughs> uh, and so I, I love meeting with agencies for that reason. Uh, Hard to build. I mean, it took us a long time. A lot of thought and a lot of sausage making went into the program. A lot more work to do, by the way. Uh, we're starting to get very good at freemium. You know, really think about this freemium, giving away the free CRM. Somebody comes in. How do we coach them through it, get them up and running, and then sell them more stuff? Freemium is a very hard thing to do. Your product's got to be very light, very fast, very consumer-esque. I think a year from now, that will be one that will be a core, hard, really hard thing for a competitor to unseat right, that's hit, coming. Hit hard question for you. Sure. Freemium goes across all of the different hubs. Yes. Doesn't exist on the, um, on the web, on the, um, on the CMS. We, is there a possible future where? Yes, absolutely. We want that to look yeah. a lot more like the other hubs down the road. And uh, I actually, you can, there is a freemium now in the CMS. You can set it up on your own and everything, get the website built before you charge. Yeah, there's but there's no freemium. That's, that's yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, Eventually, yeah. we'll do that. Yeah. 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 That's the only thing that's missing because the starter package, everything else is just kind of... I agree with you. like a business in a box, right? I agree with you. But then you've got to pay for the website. Yep. And yep. Yeah. And we want, the, we want that... that the th I'll tell you about the content management system that's interesting. Don't tweet this. Don't tweet this. <laughs> <laughs> We've been building that content management system for 13 years, a long time, and we've, we can be with WordPress, right? And just over the last three, four months, I'm coming to the conclusion that we're, we are better than WordPress. And it's the first time I've thought that in a long time. And I got that from talking to a lot of our partners who used to do WordPress and now do HubSpot. And I think it's just a process of we've got an 80-person team on it that's grinding on it, listening to customers and building stuff. It's also because we've opened it up to let developers do more stuff. We created a product object in there that can interface with your website. There's a lot of cool stuff that's come in there. 
And so I want to move, eventually move that, that content management system from kind of an add-on without a premium to be a full hub. I don't know when. We've got a lot of work to do, but at some point I'd like to do that. I feel like that in and of itself is, is a key part of the customer experience you have to get right. And I think once we build out the back end and you have all your product objects in HubSpot and all your pricing and packaging in HubSpot, all that stuff's in HubSpot, connecting all that stuff with your website is going to be insanely powerful. We got work to do there. Question. Um, we have a microphone as well. Um, question on the front. Hi, hi, Brian. Hi, nice to see you. Uh, PJ Pajaj from ProQuest. Uh, we're a startup, three years old. Um, we've been HubSpot since the beginning. We're now enterprise. Fantastic product. Uh, gives us a lot of external innovation, which is really good for us. Um, so we produce large-scale commercial conferences, um, and we're now looking to roll out from a few to 20 around the world, and we've got hundreds of workflows and lists and lots going on. And we would love as kind of a way to be able to just have, a, have that as our blueprint so we can just replicate it for our other conferences. Um, is there a way in which that could potentially happen at some stage in the future? Um, where you can input the key data for each event and it, it, it kind of rolls out the workflows? Is it an event, event management? Product you're describing, or no, no. So we we uh, at, we stage conferences. So we 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 create the agenda, recruit the speakers, market stage. Right. We do the whole thing. Our revenue comes from attendees and sponsors. You want to cookie cutter it? Yeah. So we want to, um, uh, and it's it's uh, it's the same topic area. So we're going to geo clone the event. Right. The so we want to take all those. I know what you're about Workflows we have with all our different stakeholders. It's not that easy to do that today. I agree with that. Uh, I will say that something we know is, that, by the way, HubSpot, one of the things I love and hate about HubSpot is we're in the top of the second inning of using a baseball analogy. Like, there's so much more. To, it's so powerful. It's so great. It's so much more to do. Um, there's something inside of HubSpot that I've never liked, and it's the idea of it's very focused on the one company, the one division, and we've never been great at, oh, we have multiple countries, we have multiple divisions, we want to clone things across these things and tweak them. It's a big initiative inside of HubSpot right now to be able to do that stuff and do reporting across it and campaign reporting in a very thoughtful way. So it's something we're working on. It's the way we describe it is a little differently than the way you describe it, but I would imagine over the next, like between now and inbound, there'll be a lot of progress on that type of thing. It used to be for each of those events, you'd have to buy a different URL which it gets really expensive. Now we want to create it so you can do it all inside one URL. You can do reporting across all of it and really make it quite tidy. That's a, that's a big initiative inside of HubSpot. Come to me after. I'll get you more information on it. Yep. I'll connect you with the product manager working on it. Good question. Tough question. <coughs> Didn't think I was going to have to work. Uh, yeah, hi, Brian. <laughs> Is it working? Yeah. It's just recording. So just, just all right, yeah. Hi Brian. Um, Hi. Yeah, it's just back to you. Sorry. Back to you, Flywheel. Um, you mentioned B two B. Well, I've touched the microphone. <laughs> um, You're doing great. You're breaking your bias. Um, <laughs> yeah. So with regards to you, Flywheel, you very much talked about the importance of the customer essentially, and you talked briefly about B two B. But just advice in terms of a B two C company. Um, obviously, we want clients to do word of mouth, but how do you really incentivize? Yeah, I think this flywheel idea is something the B2C industry has embraced in a, in a big way. 
and if you're not doing it, I think you're kind of screwed. Uh, like my examples of Casper Mattress, of Warby Parker, of Spotify, of Dollar Shave Club, of Stitch Fix, of Uber. Uh, you could go from like the Away suitcase to Peloton to uh, class pass to every industry seems to be getting disrupted in the B2C world by one of these, I call them experience disruptors. So it's like you got to go now and fix it. And you've got to build your customer code and give yourself a harsh score. And then you got to build your flywheel. And it's like, how do I get the friction out? And how do I make it really easy to buy and get it to move faster, get the humans out of there and make it a really delightful experience? So I think that's now where I think B2B. It's just starting. Um, in B2B, like I look at Zoom as a company versus WebEx. How'd they do it? Well, the product's better, a little better. Uh, the experience is better. It's a freemium model. You look at Slack versus you know, whoever was before them. You look at Lassian and what they're doing. You look at WeWork. So many of the new companies that are really growing on the B2B side are doing it not with much better products, but they're doing it with much better experiences to match the way people like, just like you want to buy stuff. And then they get in through the end users, and then they spread. It used to be that IT was the decision maker in B2B, and IT was the gatekeeper. Now IT is just, wow, they're just trying to deal with all the demand from the end users who are using this stuff. And so if you're in B2C, I'd say you got to get on this tomorrow uh, before somebody else does. And it's, it's a little bit of a winner-take-all game. Like the experience disruptor who does it first, it's hard to catch up, really hard. I mean, no one's catching up to Amazon, no one. Um, Forget it. Brian, one of the things that you said earlier on is that you said that people are not wanting to talk to people no. anymore. And maybe pushing back a little bit on that is that when they actually do, they end up with such a bad experience. Yes. Because that person at the other end doesn't know their history. It doesn't, they, they don't empathize. They, they can't actually connect. So when you connect all the dots with systems, when the, the whole thing gels, then that experience of actually talking to a person comes back to being a valuable thing again. Yeah. So maybe that trend will, will level off a little could, bit. It could be. I, th I think what I like about HubSpot is inside of it you've got one of those, the timeline of information. And so you know, okay, I've got XYZ Corporation, they're a customer, here's how many people in there, here's how many times they hit your website, here's which version of the product, here are all the uh, calls they've had before. So before you pick up the phone and talk with them, bam, you just know a lot. Um, and you're having the conversation very quickly, you can kind of get in there and make some progress. So that's one thing I think is key for all, whether you're using HubSpot or another system, getting that unified view of the, of the customer is key. Tricky if you're acquiring different businesses and growing that way. My second thing I would say, and this is controversial, a lot of people totally disagree with me, is historically what companies like to do is have what I call I-shaped people versus T-shaped people. I-shaped people are very good at one thing. And maybe they're good at fixing a certain type of bug in your software. And then there's another person who's very good at doing billing issues with your software. And another person is very good at training somebody with your software. Another person is very good at whatever it would be. And you really get very granular about each skill set inside your company. And each skill set goes very deep in that. And they're fantastic at it. But each person means a handoff to the customer. I like this idea of a T-shaped person. And the T-shaped person may, be, may not be the best in the world at all that stuff, but they grew up in one of those things and get pretty good at the rest of the stuff. 
And as a customer, I'd rather deal with one T-shaped person who's very good than seven I-shaped people who are excellent. And so I think there'll be a bit of a shift there. I also just think, and this is not, uh, this isn't good necessarily for humanity, but I think customers want like automation. They like, for example, we notice like we have chat on every page in our site. We have chat inside your applications. The weirdest thing about chat that we've noticed is humans chat much more regularly and freely with a bot than another human. What the fuck? <laughs> you know? It's true. Uh, and so I think just more and more. <laughs> just more and more people like they want they expect and want automation in automation it works 24 hours a day seven days a week it works 365 days a year it doesn't make mistakes it doesn't go through training um, and so I think finding that really nice combination of automation and super helpful t-shaped humans that's the magic in the future fantastic question yeah over here the concept of the flywheel but if you were to start again today and couldn't leverage the existing customers how would you go about finding your first hundred customers okay i'll just tell you how we did it at hubspot uh literally our first hundred customers were all friends of mine <laughs> and we had a list <laughs> when we got to 200 customers we had a list custom what we didn't need to have a crm back then it was customer name um FOB, friend of Ryan, yes or no. Uh, and when the list gets to more no than yes, everyone's like, okay, we're starting to turn into a real business because people are finding us via word of mouth and whatnot. Uh, that's literally how we did it. And so our first wave of customers was friends of mine. The second wave of customers was content marketing. We just wrote a lot of really, we spent a lot of time thinking about and creating high quality blog articles. And the way we did that was, Every week, my co-founder and I would create two a week, and we competed on who can get the most traffic and leads from the blog articles. And part of what informed HubSpot was we are really good at it. Uh, the, the competition was very healthy and very productive. We would want to beat each other with the next article, get more visitors, more leads. And we got very clever with SEO because of that, and we got very clever with social media. How could we get found and spread in social media? And we built all that knowledge in our head basically into the software. And that's what really helped the early versions of HubSpot became was kind of a content marketing platform. So a lot of people draw it like this. I got the bar, the bar it was a Brexit argument in the bar. You pro organist. Okay, some people draw it like this. Like in the early days you need to pull, there's a, there's a funnel stuck on your flywheel. That's cheating, but that's how people do it. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Next question, please. Over here. Could you pass the microphone on? Hi, Brian. Um, I wanted to ask about. towards um, being able to buy something just on the website. What do you think is the most important product consideration when maybe switching or trying out that model? Because obviously not all products are made to be just sold and used um, by users alone. It's 
it's got to be easy to use, so easy. And maybe you've got some big comp, like think, think HubSpot's pretty big now, it's got three hubs, and the, if you have the three enterprise versions, this is a lot, that's a lot of functionality in there. Um, what we try to do, and we don't have this nailed at all, but what we try to do in our premium is give a very thin amount of software that is very easy to, to discover and use. Um, and the key is, you go through the steps, you give us your username, you give us your email address, you give us a couple pieces of information, we drop you in the application, you watch the video, and you go. And we, we watch like per second the drop off of usage, literally like per second. And what we want is somebody to get in there and just be like, oh my God, I like using this. And then bam, they invite a friend. And it was like that, not, certainly not like that for everyone, but we have a curve that looks per, per second and then per day. And we're looking at if 100 people sign up, of those 100, how many are active users 30 days from then? That's a really good way to measure it. And we watch the drop-off. And most of the drop-off is in the first five minutes, like 80% of the drop-off. And then there's a little bit of drop-off since then. And we're just, every month we look and we're trying to move those curves up. And so I would just say ease of use. How do you take a little piece of your product and offer it for free? I might just add an anecdote to that as well. Having spoken to some of the internal product team uh, in the business that, to dumb it down for me, they, they described it as parallels with our content marketing play and our product play, where you can produce any content. If the quality is poor, it doesn't have any effect at all. And it's being brave on the product side to decide how much value product you're going to give away. And it has to be actually valuable. It can't just be a very, very slim, non-valuable product offering. People will see it as... Same with content. They'll say this is a piece of content that's of almost no value. So that give value before you expect to extract value piece, that equation of how willing and able you are to give away that valuable component of your product, people say, you've, you've actually very authentically given me something I can definitely use. Um, that's an important balance to have as well. I'll give you one more. I'll give you two more, two more little tips on this. Um, there's an expression we use, time to wow. It's like, well, how many clicks has she gone in before she's like, wow, that did something cool I didn't expect. And then there's another concept we have, the, the wow to work ratio. How much work did you have to put in before something magical happened? Like I think of Google, I go to the Google search engine, I put in London weather, bam, that was very little work. It's, it's a, the wow to work ratio is really strong for something like Google how much value you can get out of that. Twitter is kind of like that. You give Twitter a couple pieces of information. Wow, it does a lot of cool stuff for me. And so time to wow and the wow to work ratio are really key in premium. Question. Yeah, I would s I'll give you a couple thoughts on content. People don't like to read. Humans are lazy. Uh, people like to watch video and to listen. 
And so to the extent you can create a video blog where you put your handsome face in front of a camera once a week and have a whiteboard behind you and talk about what's happening in the industry or product, whatever it is, I don't know what your value prop is, and maybe geek out about it, I think that potentially is a better medium for attracting people in. It's certainly unique, um, and it's not difficult or expensive. And then podcast is a, year, is a thing. It's not going away. Uh, I don't know if you can explain your stuff by a podcast if it's something that needs diagrams and stuff like that, but I think podcast is a real arbitrage opportunity today. If you're in a really niche industry, probably no one else has a podcast, but you're in a really niche industry and there's already 15 blogs, there's probably no video blogs and there's probably no podcasts. I would think about going that way. I would just add to that, do everything, right? It's true, people love video, they'll watch video, but sometimes they might want to share something, they might want to download something. Um, Google still isn't as good at reading video as it is at reading text. Yeah. So repurpose content in multiple different ways. Chop it up for social media, turn it into blog posts, turn it into white papers. And Leverage I, the video itself. I, I just build on what he said. On the content side, it used to be that you could kind of create any content and just clog the search engines and you would get found and it works. The search engines get smarter every, mo like every second they get smarter. And they're really starting to get good at quality over quantity. Um, and so quality really matters. So instead of before you spent a half an hour writing, um, you spent three and a half hours writing seven blog articles and you do one a day over the course of a week, I think you're better off now spending three and a half hours on one. It's riskier uh, and really making it in-depth and high quality. And I would have that blog article out in the wild. I wouldn't gate it and I would put chat on it. It's what we call remarkable content. Make content that is worth remarking on. Right? Yeah, question. Um, thank you. Uh, at the beginning, you, you mentioned the crisis in... At the beginning, you mentioned the crisis in trust. The last discussion and others, you've been saying people prefer automation to people. What is, is, does trust in people have no future <laughs> because you want the trust to be in automation? And, uh, you know, I saw it at Valentine's Day, a young couple both tweeting each other opposite sides of the table, <laughs> not even talking. So, I mean, what role do you see people have in trust? <laughs> I think people do trust each other. I think people trust their friends and they trust their colleagues. Uh, they trust, like, who does a HubSpot user trust? Let's say you're a HubSpot user in the audience. I think they probably are putting a grain of salt on what I'm saying right now. It's just the way the world is. 10 years ago, they probably wouldn't have put that grain of salt on, but they put the grain of salt on. I think they're much more likely at the coffee hour to trust the person who they're having coffee with that they, they realize they both use the workflow tool inside of HubSpot incessantly and live inside of there. I think that person, in a way, is a lot more credible than I am, the creator of HubSpot. And I just think my credibility has gone down. Christian, as the salesperson's credibility has gone down. I just think humans trust in any institution, any large organization, um, it feels like it's falling. Um, and we track this kind of stuff. And when we, we track it over the last three or four years, and, and it's, we call it our, our trust index. And 
the trust in marketers has gone from 6% to 3% over the last two years. The trust in salespeople has gone from 3% to 2%. The trust in colleagues has gone from 50% to 69%. I just think there's a, there's a shift in society going on, and I think, I think our governments are, are largely the cause of it. <laughs> and uh, sales and marketing is just part of that thing that's going on. All right, last question, and we're going to kick off just for the next presentation. So, yeah, please. Uh, no, sorry, Rita, you've already had one, so let me pass it back. back <laughs> Don't <one. talk> <laughs> Hi, yes. um, so Sarah from Tribal Impact. Um, with referral-based marketing, obviously, am I allowed to call Jennifer? So uh, with referral-based marketing and, um, you know, this inbound-driven approach to business and hiring talent and recruitment, in a business to your, to your organization, where does that leave the role of sales? See, I think sales is still important. I think sales is still important. I just think the role is different. They, so I was a salesperson when I started my career, and, and I remember how I would sell. Like, it was, it was in the 1990s. I would cold call into, I sold CAD software, computer-aided design. I would cold call into the VP of engineering, the VP of engineering had a phone on his desk at the time. People don't have phones on their desk anymore. The VP of engineering didn't have caller ID, so he picked up the phone. I have a chat with him. It was always a him back then. Uh, times have changed in a good way on that front. Uh, and I have a chat with him. And then I mail him a bunch of specs and brochures. And then he would, he would call me because he would need more information. And then if he wanted anything, if he wanted more detailed product information, I had it. If he wanted to talk to my founder, I had it. If he wanted to talk to a reference, I, there was no place for him to find any of that stuff. There was no website, per se. There was no G2 crowd. There was no LinkedIn. There was no Twitter. There was no nothing. I was the sole source of information. Nowadays, the, I mean, the sale doesn't start with somebody calling into that person. The sale starts with, with a Google search, typically, or a conversation. And the salesperson gets involved, but when? I would argue the salesperson gets involved a, later in the process, particularly if you're selling something complicated like uh, wireless area networks. And that salesperson is someone who is answering the questions that the website can't answer. That salesperson is crafting the solution of something that's complicated into their business, really understanding that person's business, the VP of engineering's business, understanding their business process, deeply understanding your products, and crafting a solution for them, and then bringing it across the finish lining and ensuring they're successful. So I think the role of the sales rep as cold caller, as very aggressive, as old school, has really changed into helper, educator, vision mapper. I think the sales rep has a really important role. It's just changed. I might just add to that as well, and we're just about to wrap, but uh, through the eyes of a salesperson in a business that's run through a, a funnel, uh, through a flywheel, excuse me, the, the awareness of the role you play in your future destiny, I think, is much more stark now. And by that, I mean the old world of that funnel, which is a unidirectional saying, I'll get a lead, a prospect, if I convert it into a customer and hand it off to somebody else. And that's a one-directional flow or thought process that's been a salesperson's mindset for the longest time. And now knowing that if I do the right thing in my part of this, the flywheel, that this customer will be happy, not just because our service team will onboard and service them well, but the whole experience will have been a happy experience, that they ideally will buy some more from me, they'll come back around and I'll hopefully see them again on the next iteration of the flywheel, and much more importantly, they'll go to market and say, what a great experience that was. There's an NPS question of, is NPS during the buying process, or, or later on it should be both. So uh, any customer saying, 
quite a wonderful way to find them, to, to solution solve, to get on board, to purchase, and then and get value from. The salesperson realizes, if I'm smart, I have a set territory or book of business or an industry that I own, um, I want to become famous within the industry for having the best experience. And if every customer I bring through my flywheel goes out and tells others about the experience, that can only be good for me as a salesperson. And we are a little, little focused on our number and our achievement and our attainment. That's how salespeople are wired. So but that appreciation is, is much more now than ever before. So, Depending on the business. So the in that same piece, so in the sales cycle, the the procurement officer, the procurement role of how and when they negotiate the deal, if it's purely that negotiation lens, um, has to be the same. I, I think you can't dismiss anyone in that sales conversion part of the process, but is if the, the original person who's sourcing product and wants to solve the solution, the, the problem that they have, if they're happy, and, and I think predominantly my perspective, an emotive purchase that there's a problem to solve or an opportunity to seize and, and solutioning against that, I think procurement is to come in and make sure they get the best possible deal for that, that solves. So the business person who's choosing to, to solve their business with HubSpot, um, yes, they have to be satisfied. I think the procurement person, uh, some of that deal that has to be made, they need to come out on the right side of it. But, uh, yeah, the old procurement, the new procurement would be shaping what, what's the need versus the want, right? And uh, I was listening this morning, not one mention, uh, I realise there's big C versus big D, but sure. in your study between buyer and supplier, uh, buyer and customer, or sell, sorry, have you done studies on the buying process? Yeah. I, and, and I've seen procurement's role change a lot. Um, and um, it used to be that the first buy of a given product would go through procurement in most industries. And I just think the modern businesses that are growing, like inside of HubSpot, I can just tell you how procurement works. Procure, it, so many of the products are purchased by the end user first. And maybe there's a freemium, maybe there's a trial, maybe there's a cheapium and they'll buy something like we have 1,200 different SaaS products inside of uh, HubSpot. Until it gets to a certain number of users or a certain price, procurement, it's just too much. Procurement has to let it go. And then when it gets to a certain amount, and I can't remember what that amount is, it goes to procurement, and then they craft a contract that's custom for us to certain things we want, and they craft terms and conditions that we want. And so procurement's typically involved. It's a little bit like sales are involved later. They can't keep up with all the stuff going on. Um, and people are just clicking through all these agreements online. Um, but at some point, if it's a big vendor, strategic vendor, that's fine. So like when we bought Gmail, when we bought Slack, when we bought Zoom, when we bought everything we buy, starts with end users. And procurement eventually uh, puts together a contract and special discount terms and stuff like that. But it's a little later. This section, we're going to